Chapter 16 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 16. Among the first congratulations which poured in upon Mr. Lincoln after his election was a terse greeting from ex-Governor Chase dated November 7 that admirably expressed the prevalent feeling. You are President-elect. I congratulate you and thank God. The great object of my wishes and labors for 19 years is accomplished in the overthrow of the slave power. The space is now clear for the establishment of a policy of freedom on safe and firm grounds. The lead is yours. The responsibility is great. May God strengthen you for your great duties. Day after day confirmed the completeness of the Republican victory, and two weeks after election, the city of Springfield was in the blazing glory of a great celebration to signalize the result. Projected merely as a local jubilee, it called to the city crowds of rejoicing strangers. Though he had not said a public word during the campaign, Mr. Lincoln could not, on this occasion, refuse the sound of his voice to the huge torchlight procession and the crowds of his neighbors and friends whose shouts called him to the door of his modest home. It was not the voice of partisan exultation, however, but of patriotic liberality. He said, friends and fellow citizens, please excuse me on the occasion from making a speech. I thank you in common with all those who have thought fit by their votes to endorse the Republican cause. I rejoice with you in the success which has thus far attended that cause. Yet in all our rejoicings, let us neither express nor cherish any hard feelings towards any citizen who by his vote has differed with us. Let us at all times remember that all American citizens are brothers of a common country and should dwell together in the bonds of fraternal feeling. We will perceive hereafter how, in this simple utterance of his opening presidential career, he struck the keynote of blended firmness and charity which was to become the characteristic of his administration. Springfield now became, for some months, the mecca of American politics. Casual visitors tarried for a few hours to shake hands with the newly chosen chief. Correspondents of leading newspapers established temporary headquarters from which to send their readers pen pictures of his personal appearance, his daily habits, his home and public surroundings, and to catch the flying and often contradictory rumors of his probable intentions. Artists came to paint his portrait, ambitious politicians to note new party currents, and veteran statesmen to urge the adoption of favorite theories or the advancement of faithful adherents. To all appearance, Lincoln remained unchanged. In the unpretending two-story frame house which constituted his home, his daily routine continued as before, except that his door was oftener open to welcome the curious visitor or to shelter the confidential discussion of ominous occurrences in national affairs. His daily public occupation was to proceed to the governor's office in the state house to receive the cordial and entirely unceremonious greetings of high and low, whosoever chose to enter at the open door, and in the interim to keep himself informed, by means of the daily increasing budget of letters and newspapers, of the events of the country at large, 
and to give directions to his private secretary as to what replies should be made to important communications beyond the arrival of distinguished visitors there was in all this no sign of elevation and rulership he was still the kind neighbor and genial companion who had for every one he met the same bearing which for a quarter of a century had made his name a household synonym of manly affection virtue and honor under this quiet exterior and commonplace routine he was however already undergoing most anxious and harassing labors day by day the horizon of politics gathered gloom and the theory of secession became the theme of every newspaper and the staple question of his daily visitors even upon theories lincoln maintained a prudent reserve nevertheless his qualified comments to friends were prompt and clear my own impression is said he november fifteenth leaving myself room to modify the opinion if upon a further investigation i should see fit to do so that this government possesses both the authority and the power to maintain its own integrity that however is not the ugly point of this matter the ugly point is the necessity of keeping the government together by force as ours should be a government of fraternity later december thirteen he formulated his opinion a little more in detail the very existence said he of a general and national government implies the legal power right and duty of maintaining its own integrity this if not expressed is at least implied in the constitution the right of a state to secede is not an open or debatable question it was fully discussed in jackson's time and denied not only by him but by the vote of congress it is the duty of a president to execute the laws and maintain the existing government he cannot entertain any proposition for dissolution or dismemberment he was not elected for any such purpose as a matter of theoretical speculation it is probably true that if the people with whom the whole question rests should become tired of the present government they might change it in the manner prescribed by the constitution the secrets of the incipient rebellion and the treachery and conspiracy of a portion of mr buchanan's cabinet which have been so fully laid bare from the data only since become accessible neither mr lincoln nor any one save the actors themselves had then means of knowing but in addition to other current sources of information the confidential letters of captain abner doubleday second in command at fort moultrie written to the captain's brother in new york were so long as mail communication remained forwarded to the president-elect giving him an inside view of matters at that critical post most important however in influence and most valuable in possible as well as actual consequences were the correspondence and confidence which established themselves at an early day between mr lincoln and general scott the general was evidently somewhat proud of his famous views written to president buchanan under date of october twenty ninth eighteen sixty as a political suggestion he transmitted a copy of the same to the president-elect as he had done to many other gentlemen of prominence a brief acknowledgment was written in reply november nine mr lincoln tenders his sincere thanks to general scott for the copy of his views etc which is received 
and especially for this renewed manifestation of his patriotic purposes as a citizen connected as it is with his high official position and most distinguished character as a military captain the delicate compliment and dignified reserve made their impression on the old hero called to washington about the middle of december and smarting under the neglect of secretary floyd and the discouraging indifference of president buchanan his hopes turned toward the elect of the people at springfield it was at this juncture december seventeen that a friend of long standing called upon the general and in a confidential and frank interview learned from his own lips the alarming dangers of the government the neglect of the administration to send reinforcements the defenseless situation at fort moultrie and that sumter the key of charleston harbor lay at the mercy of a mob none of his suggestions or recommendations have been acted upon and of course he is powerless to do anything further but his heart is sound and true i wish to god said he that mr lincoln was in office he continued i do not know him but i believe him a true honest and conservative man then he asked earnestly mr washburn is he a firm man i answered that i had known you long and well and that you would discharge your duty and your whole duty in the sight of the furnace seven times heated he then said resolutely and hopefully all is not lost in response to this patriotic expression of the general the return mail carried the following letter from lincoln to washburn dated december twenty one last night i received your letter giving an account of your interview with general scott and for which i thank you please present my respects to the general and tell him confidentially i shall be obliged to him to be as well prepared as he can to either hold or retake the forts as the case may require at and after the inauguration a little later mr lincoln again sent messages of esteem and confidence to the general by senators cameron and baker who made visits to springfield i have seen general scott writes cameron in reply january three who bids me say he will be glad to act under your orders in all ways to preserve the union he says mr buchanan at last has called on him to see that order shall be preserved at the inauguration in this district that for this purpose he has ordered here two companies of flying artillery and that he will organize the militia and have himself sworn in as a constable the old warrior is roused and he will be equal to the occasion this statement was repeated in an autograph note from the general himself on the following day lieutenant general scott is highly gratified with the favorable opinion entertained of him by the president-elect as he learns through senators baker and cameron also personal friends of general s who is happy to reciprocate his highest respect and esteem the president-elect may rely with confidence on general s's utmost exertions in the service of his country the union both before and after the approaching inauguration the general then mentions in detail the measures just taken under the reorganized cabinet and the accession of mr holt to countermand the shipment of the pittsburgh guns to send reinforcements to fort jefferson and to secure the safety of washington for the presidential count and the approaching inauguration permit me wrote mr lincoln in reply january eleven to renew to you 
the assurance of my high appreciation of the many past services you have rendered the Union, and my deep gratification at this evidence of your present active exertions to maintain the integrity and honor of the nation. The President-elect was further gratified to receive about the same time from the veteran General Wool a letter of uncompromising loyalty. Many thanks, Lincoln wrote in reply, January 14, for your patriotic and generous letter of the 11th instant. As to how far the military force of the government may become necessary to the preservation of the Union, and more particularly how that force can best be directed to the object, I must chiefly rely upon General Scott and yourself. It affords me the profoundest satisfaction to know that with both of you, judgment and feeling go heartily with your sense of professional and official duty to the work. Meanwhile, trusty friends in Washington, both in and out of Congress, had kept Lincoln informed by letter by public events occurring there, so far as they were permitted to come to the knowledge of Republicans. How the cabinet was divided, how the message was scouted, the bold utterances of treason, the growing apprehensions of the, of the public, but general opinion was still in a hopeful mood. Mr. Mann wrote one, who stated that he knew you personally, requested me to say that he had seen the Union dissolve twice, once, when Southern members of Congress were refused for three days to occupy their seats, and that it all ended in smoke. He did not appear the least alarmed about the secession movement, but others, particularly Thurlow Weed and Horace Greeley, expressed great anxiety. These were influential names, and it may be well to cite their own words. I am anticipating troubles, wrote Mr. Weed, December 2, not generally apprehended by our friends. I want the North to be sure she is right, and then to go ahead. Some days later he wrote further. In consultation yesterday with several friends, it was thought best to invite the governors of several states to meet in this city on Thursday of next week, so that, if possible, there should be harmony of views and action between them. It occurred to me that you should be apprised of this movement. Of course, it is to be quiet and confidential. I have been acting without knowledge of your views upon vital questions, but I find it safe to trust the head and heart when both are under the guidance of right motives. I do not want you to be saddled with the responsibilities of the government before you take the helm. On the question of preserving the Union, I am unwilling to see a united South and a divided North nor is such an alternative necessary. With wisdom and prudence, we can unite the North in upholding the supremacy of the Constitution and laws, and thus united, your administration will have its foundation upon a rock. To this, Mr. Lincoln replied as follows on the 17th of December. Yours of the 11th was received two days ago. Should the convocation of governors of which you speak seem desirous to know my views on the present aspect of things, tell them you judge from my speeches that I will be inflexible on the territorial question, that I probably think either the Missouri line extended or Douglas's and Eli Thayer's popular sovereignty would lose us everything we gain by the election, that filibustering for all south of us and making slave states of it would follow in spite of us in either case. Also that I probably think all opposition real and apparent to the fugitive slave clause of the Constitution ought to be withdrawn. 
I believe you can pretend to find but little, if anything, in my speeches about secession. But my opinion is that no state can in any way lawfully get out of the Union without the consent of the others, and that it is the duty of the President and other government functionaries to run the machine as it is. Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, not only had similar fears, but what was much worse by his editorials encouraged the South to hope for peaceable disunion. He wrote November 30, Webster and Marshall and Story have reasoned well. The federal flag represents a government, not a mere league. We are in many respects one nation from the St. John to the Rio Grande. But the genius of our institutions is essentially republican and averse to the employment of military force to fasten one section of our confederacy to the other. If eight states having five millions of people choose to separate from us, they cannot be permanently withheld from do so doing by federal cannon. There is a pretty general belief here that the cotton states will go out of the Union, wrote a correspondent from Washington. One South Carolina member is sorry for the condition of things in his state, is at heart opposed to disunion, but I will not mention his name lest it should by some means get into the newspapers, or was forced into the secession movement against his will. This I have from good authority, and yet the statement may be a mistake. It is hard to get at the exact truth. From another, Mr. Lincoln received information as to the course of his party friends. A good feeling prevails among Republican senators. The impression with all, unless there be one exception, is that Republicans have no concessions to make or compromises to offer, and that it is impolitic even to discuss making them. I was a little surprised that the House voted to raise a committee on the State of the Union. Inactivity and a kind of spirit is, it seems to me, all that is left for us to do till the 4th of March. I have never in my life, wrote Mr. Corwin, chairman of the Committee of 33, December 10, seen my country in such a dangerous position. I look upon it with great alarm, but I am resolved not to be paralyzed by dismay. Our safety can only be ensured by looking the danger full in the face and acting with calm dignity in such way as that, if possible, we may ride out the storm. These few extracts out of a multitude indicate the current and character of the reports which reached Mr. Lincoln from various quarters. The hopes of the more sanguine were unfortunately not realized. The timid grew more despondent, the traitors bolder, and the crisis almost became a panic. Businessmen and capitalists of the eastern states were beginning to exert a pressure for concessions to avert civil war under which staunch Republicans were on the point of giving way. The border states, through their presses and their public men, implored a compromise, but their entreaty was uniformly directed to the Republicans to make concessions, and more often to justify them to denounce disunion. Some of the conspirators themselves adroitly encouraged this effort to demoralize the North by a pretense of contrition. South Carolina, I suppose, wrote a friend to Mr. Lincoln, will try on her secession project. Perhaps some of the cotton states will follow. Their number will not be large. Indeed, I know that some of the heretofore most rabid secessionists now tremble before the brink on which they stand. They would retreat without trying the experiment if they had not kindled a fire at home which is beyond their control. 
this in substance jefferson davis stated to fitch no longer ago than yesterday the profession did not well accord with the signing of the conspirators secession address by that senator only three days before i listened yesterday to mr crittenden's speech wrote another friend in support of his proposed compromise in my opinion he is one of the most patriotic and at the same time mischievous of the southern senators after mr crittenden mr johnson of tennessee took the floor his simple declaration that the supposed wrongs must be settled inside of the union is worth a hundredfold more than all the patriotic wailing of the antediluvian crittendens there were plenty of correspondence to announce and describe the present and impending dangers but none to furnish a solution of the difficulty there was no end of wild suggestion and that too from prominent men ordinarily capable of giving counsel one as we have seen was for accepting disunion another thought a letter or proclamation from the president-elect would still the storm a third wanted him to drop down into washington with a carpet sack a fourth advised him to march to the capital with a hundred thousand wide awakes still a fifth proposed he should create a diversion by the purchase of cuba it was a providential blessing that in such a crisis the president-elect was a man of unfailing common sense and complete self-control he watched the rising clouds of insurrection he noted the anxious warnings of his friends he was neither buoyed up by reckless hopes nor cast down by exaggerated fears he bided his time grasped at no rash counsels or experiments uttered neither premature cry of alarm nor boast of overweening confidence he resisted pressing solicitations to change his position to explain his intention to offer either for himself or the great national majority which chose him any apology for his or their high prerogative exercised in his election it must not however be inferred from the foregoing that mr lincoln shut himself up in total silence to discreet friends as well as to honorable opponents under the seal of confidence he was always free to repeat his well-formed convictions and even in some degree to foreshadow his probable course it is gratifying to note in this connection especially since it evinces his acute judgment of human nature that in few instances was such confidence violated during the whole period of his candidacy and official life by unnoticed beginnings he easily and naturally assumed the leadership of his party in the personal interviews and private correspondence following the election he was never obtrusive or dictatorial but in a suggestion to one a hint to another a friendly explanation or admonition to a third he soon gave direction unity and confidence to his adherents william cullen bryant for instance was strongly opposed to mr seward's going into the cabinet lincoln wrote him a few lines in explanation which brought back the following qualified acquiescence i have this moment received your note nothing could be more fair or more satisfactory than the principle you lay down in regard to the formation of your council of official advisers i shall always be convinced that whatever selection you make it will be made conscientiously mr greeley was as we have seen indulging in damaging vagaries about peaceable secession and to him lincoln sent a word of friendly caution Greeley wrote a statement of his views in reply, but substantially yielded the point. He said a state could no more secede at pleasure from the Union 
than a stave could secede from a cask that if eight or ten contiguous states sought to leave he should say there's the door go but if the seceding state or states go to fighting and defying the laws the union being yet undissolved save by their own say-so i guess they will have to be made to behave themselves i fear nothing care for nothing but another disgraceful backdown of the free states that is the only real danger let the union slide it may be reconstructed let presidents be assassinated we can elect more but the republicans be defeated and crushed let them we shall rise again but another nasty compromise whereby everything is conceded and nothing secured will so thoroughly disgrace and humiliate us that we can never again raise our heads and this country becomes a second edition of the barbary states as they were sixty years ago take any form but that on this point lincoln's note had reassured his shrinking faith the tribune announced that mr lincoln had no thought of concession and thenceforward had that powerful journal took a more healthy and hopeful tone hon william kellogg the illinois representative on the committee of thirty-three wrote to him for instructions as to the course he should pursue under date of december eleven mr lincoln replied entertain no proposition for a compromise in regard to the extension of slavery the instant you do so they have us under again all our labors lost and sooner or later must be done over douglas is sure to be again trying to bring in his popular sovereignty have none of it the tug has has to come and better now than later you know i think the fugitive slave clause of the constitution ought to be enforced and to put it in its mildest form ought not to be resisted it is evident that lincoln was at this time not without serious apprehension that the threats and movements of secession might induce some of the less sturdy republicans to listen to appeals for concession for on december thirteenth he repeated this monition to his friend washburn in congress with added emphasis your long letter received prevent as far as possible any of our friends from demoralizing themselves in their cause by entertaining propositions for compromise of any sort on slavery extension there is no possible compromise upon it but what puts us under again and all our work to do over again whether it be a missouri line or eli thayer's popular sovereignty it is all the same let either be done and immediately filibustering and extending slavery recommences on that point hold firm as a chain of steel some weeks later kellogg visited lincoln to further urge his views of compromise on the president-elect as a result of that visit lincoln wrote the following letter to seward on february one on the twenty first ultimate honorable william kellogg a republican member of congress of this state whom you probably know was here in a good deal of anxiety seeking to ascertain to what extent i would be consenting for our friends to go in the way of compromise on the now vexed question while he was with me i received a dispatch from senator trumbull at washington alluding to the same question and telling me to await letters i therefore told mr kellogg that when i should receive these letters posting me as to the state of affairs at washington i would write to you requesting you to let him see my letter to my surprise when the letters mentioned by judge trumbull came they made no allusion to the vexed question this baffled me so much that i was 
near not writing you at all, in compliance with what I have said to Judge Kellogg. I say now, however, as I have all the while said, that on the territorial question, that is, the question of extending slavery under the national auspices, I am inflexible. I am for no compromise which assists or permits the extension of the institution on soil owned by the nation. And any trick by which the nation is to acquire territory and then allow some local authority to spread slavery over it is as obnoxious as any other. I take it that to effect some such result as this and to put us again on the high road to a slave empire is the object of all these proposed compromises. I am against it. As to fugitive slaves, District of Columbia, slave trade among the slave states, and whatever springs necessity from the fact that the institution is amongst us, I care but little, so that what is done be comely and not altogether outrageous. Nor do I care much about New Mexico if further extension were hedged against. We shall describe somewhat in detail the formation of Lincoln's cabinet, and will only mention here that on December the 13th he began that work by tendering the post of Secretary of State to Mr. Seward, which offer was accepted December 28th. The correspondence between these eminent men affords an interesting view of the beginnings of the new administration. Mr. Weed, finding it not inconvenient to go west, wrote Seward, December 16, I've had some conversation with him concerning the condition and the prospect of public affairs, and he will be able to inform you of my present unsettled view of the subject upon which you so kindly wrote me a few days ago. I shall remain at home until his return and shall then, in further conference with him, have the advantage of a knowledge of the effect of public events certain to occur this week. Thurlow Weed, the editor of the Albany Evening Journal, who held a unique position as the intimate friend of Seward and as a politician of unrivaled influence in the state of New York, went to Springfield and had several interviews with the president-elect. There is no record of these conferences, but it is likely that Mr. Weed urged on those occasions, as he did on all others, the utmost forbearance, conciliation, and concession to the South. To employ his favorite formula, he wanted Republicans to meet secession as patriots and not as partisans. The sentiment and the alliteration were both pleasing, but Lincoln, trained in almost lifelong debate with Douglas, the most subtle juggler in words ever known to American politics, was not a man to deal in vague phrases. He told Mr. Weed just what he would concede and just how far he would conciliate, drew him a sharp line and a definite line to show where partisanship ends and where patriotism begins. When Mr. Weed returned, he bore with him the written statement of Lincoln, what he believed and was determined to assert and maintain on pending and probable issues. Mr. Seward's letter of December 26th to Lincoln gives us the sequel of this visit. I had only the opportunity for conferring with Mr. Weed, which was afforded by our journeying together on the railroad from Syracuse to Albany. He gave me verbally the substance of the suggestion you prepared for the consideration of the Republican members, but not the written proposition. This morning I received the latter from him, and also information for the first time of your expectation that I would write to you concerning the temper of parties and the public ear. I met on Monday my Republican associates on the Committee of Thirteen, and afterwards the whole committee. With the unanimous consent of our section, I offered three propositions which seemed to me to cover the ground of the suggestion made by you through Mr. Weed, as I understood it. First, that the Constitution should never be altered so as to authorize Congress 
to abolish or interfere with slavery in the states. This was accepted. Second, that the fugitive slave law should be amended by granting a jury trial to the fugitive. This, in opposition to our votes, was amended so as to give the jury in the state from which the fugitive fled, and so amended was voted down by our own votes. The committee had already agreed to Mr. Crittenden's amendment concerning the fees of the commissioner, making them the same when the fugitive is returned to slavery as when he is discharged. Our third resolution was that Congress recommend to all the states to revise their legislation concerning persons recently resident in other states and to repeal all such laws which contravene the Constitution of the United States or any law of Congress passed in pursuance thereof. This was rejected by the pro-slavery vote of the committee. Today we have had another meeting. I offered with the concurrence of my political associates a fourth proposition, viz. that Congress should pass a law to punish invasions of our states and conspiracies to effect such invasions, but the latter only in the state and district where the acts of such complicity were committed. This, by the votes of our opponents, was amended so as practically to carry out Mr. Douglas's suggestion of last winter for the revival of the old sedition law of John Adams's time, and then was rejected by our own votes. This evening, the Republican members of the committee with Judge Trumbull and Mr. Fessenden met at my house to consider your written suggestion and determine whether it shall be offered. While we think the ground has already been covered, we find that in the form you give it, it would divide our friends not only in the committee but in Congress, a portion being unwilling to give up their old opinion that the duty of executing the constitutional provisions concerning fugitives from service belongs to the states and not at all to Congress. But we shall confer and act as wisely as we can. Thus far, I have reported only our action on the subject of your suggestion. I proceed now to tell you what I think of the temper of the parties and of the public here. South Carolina has already taken her attitude of defiance. Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana are pushed on towards the same attitude. I think that they could not be arrested even if we should offer all you suggest, and with it the restoration of the Missouri Compromise Line. But persons acting for those states intimate that they might be so arrested because they think that the Republicans are not going to concede the restoration of that line. The action of the border states is uncertain. Sympathy there is strong with the cotton states, while prudence and patriotism dictate adhesion to the Union. Nothing could certainly restrain them but the adoption of Mr. Crittenden's compromise, and I do not see the slightest indication of its adoption on the Republican side of the Congress. The members stand nearly or quite as firm against it as the country is. Under these circumstances, time and accident, it seems to me, must have shown the course of the border states. Probably all the debate and conferences we have hitherto had will sink out of the public mind within a week or two when the Republican members shall have refused to surrender at discretion to the state of South Carolina. New and exciting subjects will enter into the agitation and control results. Thus I have said all that I am able to say of the temper of parties and of the public. I add very respectfully my own opinion on the probable future. The United States of America, their constitution, their capital, their organization, and all its departments 
and with all its military and naval forces will stand and pass without resistance into your hands there will be several perhaps all of the slave states standing in a contumacious attitude on the fourth of march sedition will be growing weaker and loyalty stronger every day from the acts of secession as they occur but now the crisis in the affairs of the government was approaching it is already foreshadowed in seward's letter of december twenty eighth there is a feverish excitement here wrote he which awakens all kinds of apprehensions of popular disturbance and disorders connected with your assumption of the government and he suggested that mr lincoln should prepare to come to washington a week sooner than usual on such occasions prefacing the advice with the statement i do not entertain these apprehensions myself but by the day following he became convinced of the danger and again wrote at length i have gotten a position in which i can see what is going on in the councils of the president it pains me to learn that things there are even worse than is understood the president is debating day and night on the question whether he shall not recall major anderson and surrender fort sumter and go on arming the south a plot is forming to seize the capital on or before the fourth of march and this too has its accomplices in the public council i could tell you more particularly than i dare write but you must not imagine that i am giving you suspicions and rumors believe me that i know what i write in point of fact the responsibilities of your administration must begin before the time arrives mr seward then advises that the president should arrive earlier that he appoint the secretaries of war navy and treasury and that they come to washington as soon as possible the events of a day or two however dissipated the apparent magnitude of the crisis buchanan's council broke up floyd retired in disgrace the cabinet was reorganized holt was made secretary of war and the plots of the conspirators were exposed and for a season baffled end of chapter sixteen